Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Uh, Welcome this morning. Thank you for being with us. Uh, If you haven't been here for a while, we're going through a series in the book of Judges, um, and our series is called Right in Our Own Sight. It comes from multiple scriptures within the beginning and ends of the book of Judges where it says, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own sight. So we have had three sessions. Sean did an amazing, uh, this is our third session. Sean did an amazing job kicking us off. I spoke about Ehud last week through Judges chapter 3 and we are now in Judges chapter 4. The thing about Judges is that there is this very specific and ongoing cycle, and um, we have the Bible Project to thank for this um, slide, and uh, what happens is, and we discovered this last week, what happens is there are t- there's a time of peace, and after Ehud, it says there was peace for 80 years, uh, and then the people become a little uh, despondent, and they look to sin. Uh, Then there is judgment and oppression, then the people repent, and then there is deliverance. That is the cycle of judges. And we find at the end of chapter 3 that the same thing was happening. They had peace for 80 years. The beginning of chapter 4, the people are sinning and doing things uh, that they should not be doing as the people of God, so God sends them Deborah. And Deborah was a wife, a judge, and a prophet. Now, when we talk about judges, most of the time in the book of Judges, we're talking about a military champion. And Deborah was not a military champion. Deborah was a prophet and a judge. And we'll see as the story unfolds just how pivotal and critical she was. Now, when it comes to judging as a dad, I I find myself judging in various circumstances. I find myself judging... In well, that is what it is now. Um, sorry, Jess. I find myself judging in very like idiotic circumstances, like l- cutting a pie in half, and who's going to get which piece? So then I say to one of my daughters, "Okay, you will cut the pie, and the other one gets to choose which pie she's going to use." I think that's very wise. You know, the problem comes in when there are rules that I'm unaware of, like the shotgun rule. Parents, you aware of the shotgun rule? So someone shouts shotgun and they get to sit sit in the front row, I mean in the the front seat. But the problem is we've had to actually adjudicate this because what happens is we'll say, okay, we're going to go somewhere and someone shouts shotgun. And I'm like, well, that's not how it works. Well, how does it work then? Well, no, you have to see the car first and then you have to be able to shout shotgun. And so Aaron, who is really very good at out-of-box thinking, just steps outside, looks at the car, and says, shotgun. You know what I mean? And I'm like... Uh, Deborah was not judging things like this, these, these kind of minor peripheral issues. Uh, Deborah was a woman that was judging some important things. She would judge uh, issues between tribes. She would judge issues when it comes to boundary markers. Uh, She was at a place under the palms where people will come to her and actually say, this is our issue. We want you to adjudicate on this and tell us who is right and who is wrong. And uh, so this is where we pick up the story in Judges 4, verses 6 to 10. She, this is Deborah, sent word to Barak. And we don't know who Barak is yet. 
Um, just like any story in any narrative, there's, there's a little bit of tension that has been created here. She sends word to Barak, Abinoam's son from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord Israel's God issued you a command? Go and assemble at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 men from the people of Naphtali and Zebulun with you. I'll lure Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, and to assemble his chariots and troops against you at the Kishon River, and then I'll help you overpower them. Barak replied to her, if you go with me, I'll go, but if not, I won't go. Deborah answered, I'll definitely go with you. However, the path you're taking won't bring honor to you because the Lord will hand over Caesarea to a woman. Then Deborah got up and went back with Barak to Kedesh. He summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men marched out behind him, and Deborah marched out with him too. So who is this guy, and what is Deborah doing? As a judge, this is not new information. She's not saying, I have an idea. She is reminding Barak of, it seems, what God has already spoken to him. She's saying to him, has the Lord not already spoken? Has he not issued you a command? There seems to be a plan. There seems to be the sense in which both of them understood in the context of partnership that this is how God was going to rescue the Israelites from this Canaanite king. I'm sure that when Deborah says, this path that you are choosing is not going to bring honor to you, but honor will come to a woman, I'm sure Barak thought, that's okay by me. Um, as long as you're with me, that's okay by me. But as we'll see later on in the story, that's not exactly what happens. What Deborah is doing in this context is trying to remind him of two critical things. One, that God has already commanded him to do something. And number two, that the way in which he acts is going to bring glory to God ultimately, but he's placed himself in a position by not believing or responding to God's previous command in a place where he won't receive the honor for that. These are prophetic declarations. These are not ideas that she's had, which is why the Bible calls her a prophet. These are things that God has spoken to her clearly about and told her to partner with this guy. Why is it an issue that glory would go to a woman? Well, because in those days, participation in a battle was reserved for men, not, uh, and much less glory in a battle um, would go to a woman. What I find ironic right now is that the Israeli army is one of the very few armies that has conscription for women um, and also allows women to be in places of high combat where death can be a result. That's just for free. You can have that, you know. <laughs> So one of the things that I'm super excited about to talk this morning is the idea of women and men in leadership, right? Everyone loves talking about that, and it's my favorite subject, you know? <laughs> Are you, you're hearing the sarcasm drip from me as I'm talking about that. One of the reasons we go through the Bible is because it, uh, it prevents us from picking and choosing uh, scriptures that are difficult to apply and align in our current context. But I do want to say at the outset that the point of this is not women in leadership. This is a narrative. Chapter 4 is a narrative, and chapter 5 is poetry. And we don't determine doctrine from narrative or poetry. Judges is not intended to show us what leadership in God's church should look like. It's not telling us that this is what you must, this is how you should behave. Judges is simply telling us what happened um, in the context in, in those years. We have the danger of misapplying this passage in two key ways. The first position is this. 
Deborah only led God's people because Barak, a man, was weak, insipid, and incompetent, and so she had to act, so she was just a placeholder. Position two is Deborah was a prophet and a judge, which is proof that women should be elders in the church. Phil Whittle says this, so what do we do? The dangers are obvious. Play her down and diminish her, or play her up and make her out to be something she was not. The uncomfortable path is in the middle, as you upset both sides. But it seems to be the most responsible cause. Her spiritual gifts, both prophetic and wisdom, are gifts that are not gender-restricted, so she clearly serves as a powerful role model here. Her charisma shouldn't be doubted or made less of by focusing on Barak. And there seems to be no good reason to be worried by strong, charismatic women exercising their gifts today. What I want to encourage is that, is that we don't have to make one of two choices. There isn't the sense in which we need to find ourselves in one of two camps. There's a lot of nuance here. And, and I want to invite you to engage with me afterwards if there are questions that you have that you feel I didn't answer or disagree with. But I just want to make some comments and then return to the key part of the text. Empowering strong women is not achieved if men are weak and if we intentionally undermine men. When we champion strong men, it doesn't mean that we impede women. And so that is the path that we're trying to walk in the middle. Our body works best when we urge one another to use the gifts that God has called us to for God's glory and according to His pattern. And the key thing that I want us to notice here is the partnership between Barak and Deborah. I also want to say this, that equality is not the same as equivalence. Now, we are not an organization. And we did this when we, uh, when we looked at vocation and we looked at our value and identity. Right now in our life groups, we're going through a whole series in terms of what can we center? What is the seat of our identity? And we are a family. And that's the primary lens by which we view ourselves. We do this because in the Bible, it tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And that Christ represents what a man's roles are, and the church represents what a woman's roles are. We need both fathers and mothers in the church. And whereas there are distinctions between the sexes, this does not undermine their identical value. So equal in value does not mean equivalent in every sense. It means equal in value. I'll give you an example. Um, I want you to picture this at sunset. It's at the beach, maybe in Laguna, somewhere quiet little beach there, and the sun is coming down, and there's a man and a woman, and they're walking along the beach, and they come to this picnic, uh, area and it's all set up and there's rose petals down there and there's a little picnic basket um, and the man gets down on his knee and he opens a little black velvet box and, and she is excited and she opens the black velvet box and out pops $8,000 in cash. Are you excited about that? <laughs> Ladies, is that exactly what you want to happen? Right? Yeah, okay. I'm just realizing maybe this illustration completely backfired. You can blame Karen because I passed this by her. She said, yeah, I think it'll work, you know. Let me say this. The context determines what is more suitable, what is not, what is more valuable. The context determines what is more suitable, not what is more valuable. So the ring 
is worth $8,000. He gave her $8,000. Should she be excited about that? No, because the context determines what is suitable in this specific instance. And so in this specific instance, what she should be receiving is the ring, okay? Um, I think part of the challenge is that we don't look at context and roles, and what we do is we try and just funnel this into really one key issue. And the focus of the debate becomes um, the idea of whether women can serve on eldership. But one of the key things that we are about in the context of Mercy Commons is gift recognition. And so gift recognition is where we identify, train, and give opportunity for women to teach, lead, disciple, and prophesy. And hopefully you've seen that if you've been around in the context of Mercy Commons. Um, we have gifted teachers, and some of them are women. We have gifted leaders, some of them are women. There is not a place in which we are saying we don't want to recognize the gifts that are in women. And so I want to leave that and then return to the text, and we can talk about that at another time. So, back to the main point. Do you, does anyone remember the story now, right, <laughs> after that? Whew, back to the main point. So we left the story when Deborah says to Barak, I want you to take 10,000 men, and remember what Deborah is saying to him is, this is not my plan. God has already spoken to Barak. We don't know how, but Deborah is reminding him, God has already spoken to you. And so he takes his men, he goes to meet the enemy, and Deborah is with him. And in verse 11 of chapter 4, we are told that a man called Haber, for what unknown reason, decides to pitch his tent near where the battle is. We don't know why this is important yet, but it will become very important. It's like in those really good movies where you have this scene and you think, I wonder why this scene is there because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense now. This is one of those things in verse 11. I also want to mention that there are 900 iron chariots versus 10,000 men. And it's important because when you think about 900 chariots and 10,000 men, you think, well, that's kind of equal, you know what I mean? 10,000 men versus 900 chariots, you know, that's kind of almost a, a 10 to 1 thing. It's not equal. Iron chariots in those days were the equivalent of like F-14s. They would eviscerate the enemy. And so they would mow down anyone that was in the context of infantry in those days. So we are looking at a very lopsided battle. Judges 4 verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, get up, this is the day that the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Has the Lord not gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men behind him. The Lord threw Sisera and all the chariots in the army into a panic before Barak. And Sisera, got himself, and Sisera himself got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Now we hear echoes of Joshua in this. Now remember what God consistently said to Joshua as they went in and took control of the promised land. Joshua 1 verse 9, Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Deborah is reminding Barak not just of what God has said to Barak, but reminding him of what God has said about the Israelites. Has the Lord not gone before you? And as a prophetess and as a leader, what she's doing is what we need to be doing to each other, is reminding um, us, not how powerful we are, but reminding us about what God has already spoken over us. 
We're also told in chapter 5, verse 5, that God made it rain. In in 5, verse 5, it says that the earth gushed. Why is that important? Well, when it rains and the earth gushes, how useful is an iron chariot? And so what happened is, is we get a little bit of an idea as to why this army was able to overcome these men. The army is routed, and as Deborah prophesied, Barak and his men chase the enemies down, and they overcome them. But there is a unique end to the story. And I want to say this. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story so I don't read it. This is not an exaggeration. I'm not adding anything to this. This is literally out of Scripture, so you can read the rest of chapter 4. So what happens is Barak gets down, and they start chasing. All these men leave their chariots, and they run away, and so he starts chasing them, and he's looking for the leader of the army. And the leader of the army goes into a tent. Which tent, you may ask? The tent that was mentioned in chapter 4, verse 11. He enters this tent, and there's a young woman there called Yael. And he says, please, will you hide me? And she says, sure, I'll hide you. Now, she knows exactly who he is, and so she is playing a really pretty cool game here. So she says, I'll hide you here. Lie down over here, and she covers him with, I don't know what she covers him with, but she covers him with something. Let's just say a blanket of sorts, okay? And then he's like getting super comfortable, so he says, can you give me some water? I'm really famished. And she says, I can do better than that. I'm going to give you some milk and milk curd. And he's like, oh, okay, this is, sounding, this is sounding pretty good. So she feeds him, and she covers him, and then um, she comes to him with a tent peg in her hand. She puts it against the side of his head, takes a hammer, and plunges the tent peg through his skull through to the ground. And the Bible says, and he died. <laughs> you know, I think, I think the writer wanted to make it clear that he did not survive this, you know. So there he is, the commander of the army that Barak is chasing. Barak walks in and he says, he says where is he? And she's like, right here. Right here. Any other questions? You have any other questions for me? He's right here. So what happens is chapter 5 says this, May Yael be blessed above all women, the wife of Heber, the the Kenite be blessed above all tent-dwelling women. This is a praise psalm to God. And in chapter 5, God is being given the glory for all of this, but the people that have trusted and believed and have done what God has called them to do, are also mentioned in this. So in Judges 4, verse 23, so on that day, it doesn't say Yael subdued Jabin, king of Canaan. It says that God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, because Sisera was his commander that she killed. And in the presence of the children of all Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang that day, saying, when the leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. So what is this all about? This is not about now keeping a tent peg and a hammer in your car, ladies, instead of pepper spray. This is not about that. This is about feeble and flawed faith. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about flawed faith when it comes to Gideon and Samson. 
But we're going to talk this morning about what feeble faith looks like. Insecure faith is still faith. We look at Barak and we ask ourselves a question, is, is he a failure in all of this? Because remember, we, we, we tend to look at one of those two positions, and in order to ratify our position, we, we, we need to say, okay, no, no, he was a failure and, and Deborah was the hero in all of this. I'm not so sure. I love movies and film and books that have round characters. You guys know what a round character is? A round character is like when the good guy has some, I don't know, maybe addictions or some sins that make him kind of a little more relatable, where the bad guy does some good things that make him a little more relatable. It's, it's a rounder character. Flat characters are like pretty simple. It's like, you know, it's like the villain in Disney movies, always with a British accent. I don't know why, <laughs> but think about it. Every single one. I don't know why. Um, but they're just bad. You know, there's, there's no goodness in them. And I... Why I like round characters is this, it makes me trust the Bible more. Because if the Bible was just a collection of philosophies made out to lead you to some specific outcome, then you would think that the histories of the heroes of our faith would not be marred with all of these ugly moments. When we talk about David's sin... And when we talk about areas where people have failed. Um, and so that's why I like these things. And I don't think Barak has failed. I, I, I'm convinced that he didn't fail in this. Because number one, he was not a total coward. It's 900 chariots, okay? 900 chariots, 10,000 men. You know that you are definitely overmatched. And still, you decide to go. Chapter 5 tells us that there were those that did not go. This is how the Bible describes those that did not go. Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, stayed with the sheep. Gilead stayed with the ships. And there was much soul-searching after the victory. So the Bible points out that Barak went with men from Naphtali and Zebulun, but there were these guys that didn't go, and the excuse that they gave was, I have to look after my sheep, I have to look after my uh, ships. Does this sound familiar, like anything from what Jesus was saying? Come to my banquet. I'm sorry, I'm busy with my sheep. I'm busy with my oxen. And so we know that there are those that didn't go. We also know that he is lauded for his faith in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11, verse 30, now we're going to go back, remember, um, I, I preached last week about the fact that the Israelites were having to give tribute at the same place that they had achieved this victory in Jericho. So in terms of not only tribute, but humiliation was heaped on them. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 30, by faith Jericho's walls fell after people marched around them for seven days. Now I want you to listen here. By faith Rahab the prostitute, they could have just said Rahab. Okay, by faith Rahab the prostitute wasn't killed um, with the disobedient in Jericho because she welcomed the spies in peace. What more can I say? I would run out of time. If I told you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and all the prophets. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms and brought justice, realized promises, shut the mouths of lions, put out raging fires, escaped from the edge of the sword, and this is key. They found strength in weakness. They were mighty in war, and they routed foreign armies. 
And so in this, I'm beginning to see a picture as to why Barak isn't the coward that we think he is, why there is a sense in which his faith is being lauded. The question I asked is, what about Yael and Deborah? Why are they not mentioned in this thing? in, In the hall of faith in Hebrews, Sarah is mentioned, Rahab is mentioned, Why are Deborah and Yael not mentioned? I want to suggest that they were not in a place of fear, and they were not in a place of doubting that God would do this. It was Barak that was in a place of fear. Sarah was in a place of fear. She laughed at God when God said to her, you're going to have a son. And I think as we look through Hebrews 11, we will find that most of the men and women that are lauded for their faith are not men and women that were like, yeah, we can do this. They were men and women that were like, God, I'm not sure. I don't know about this. Are you sure? And I think that's why he's mentioned in Hebrews 11. And that's why it should give us such a deep sense of connection with him. Because even feeble and frail faith please God. Because it's not really faith when you have an expectation of a positive outcome. Now, I love the ale, the picture of the ale. I want to see a movie like this. This is the original Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? Not seen it. I haven't seen it. I'm thankful for Rings of Power because, because Rings of Power is like all that without all the sketchy stuff, right? But I'm like, I'm like sitting there thinking to myself, yeah, I don't know a lot about this woman, but I like her, you know? There's like, she's decisive and she's bold. And she's like, she is going to do what she needs to do in that moment. Also like Deborah. She's like, Barak, God has told you. She doesn't shame him, but she reminds him, God has told you. God has commanded you. Did God not tell you he would be with him? Yes, I'll come with you. But the more important issue is, do you understand that God is with you? Feeble faith is not faith in our own faith, but it's in the character of God. Karen and I went bridge jumping when we were dating. Does anyone know what bridge jumping is? You stand at the edge of a gorge, and then you jump out, and then you swing under the bridge. So it's, I mean, it literally is a a leap of faith, okay? And we had made our own bridge jumping contraption. This was not with an organization or anything, you know? We had taken, we had taken, hey, we thought this through, okay? We, we had taken seat belts, which are probably some of the strongest things that, that you'll have, and we kind of, we, we put them all together into this kind of big strap, because we knew that, you know, it, the friction of the bridge against it, we would need to mitigate against that. So we, we kind of knew what we were doing. We, we had a harness there, and... Um, and so what we did, it wasn't very high. It was maybe like 50 feet. It wasn't very high. And so what you would have to do is the, the bridge was over here. We were on this side of the bridge. We tied it up to the middle of the bridge, and you had to hold the harness, and you had to just jump. And as you jumped, you would then just swing up and down. And I, I saying to Karen, now remember, you have to push away because you're going to hit the bottom of the bridge. So you have to keep your feet up and push away from the bridge. Otherwise, you're going like, hit to the, hit the bridge, you know? So for some reason, for some reason, Karen did not have confidence in, she did not have confidence 
and me. She even, I said, don't worry, I'll do this first, you know? So I go out there, I do it, um, I hit the bridge with mostly my feet, some of my knees, come back and, and down, and then they drop me down and I had to walk all the way back up. And I said, see, it's fine. He says, like, I'm not doing this. And then Mark, who I'm still Mark Harper, he, he looks at Karen and he says, Karen, this is safe. You can trust me. And she did it. Now, I don't know if I'm bitter that she did it because she trusted Mark. I'm glad she did it, but this is what I understood. She, and Mark had not done this. I'm the one who did it, right, and showed her that this was, this was not unsafe. Mark had had a relationship, I mean, Karen had a relationship with Mark who, who led these kind of adventure things longer than she had had a relationship with me. She also knew that Mark had taken these kids out and that nothing had ever happened to these kids. And so her faith was not in the fact that this is a double clip, that there's a safety thing. She's like, if he said it was safe, it's safe. And so she went ahead and did that. And our faith is not in the ability to actually say, okay, God, I'll do this as long as it rains. If the rain starts, then I'm going to have some kind of understanding that those chariots are going to get bogged down in the mug, then I can do that. No. My faith is in the nature of my God. Sinclair Ferguson says this, True faith takes its character and quality from its object. Its strength therefore depends on the character of Christ. Even those of us who have weak faith have the same strong Christ as others. What he's saying there is that this idea of strong and weak faith is kind of a misnomer when you think about who you are placing your faith in. You are placing your faith in the most reliable person ever to walk this earth. You're placing your faith in Jesus. And so that is something that we need to understand. We have so many examples in the New Testament of feeble faith. We have the father of the mute um, son. In Mark, in, Mark in Mark 9, there's this father, and, and the disciples are arguing because they've prayed for, um, for, sorry, he's, he's not mute, he's, he's actually epileptic. And they're praying for him, and nothing is happening. And Jesus comes down and says to him, what's going on? And he says to Jesus, if you are able, you, you can heal my son. And Jesus says, if I am able, all things are possible for him who believes. And immediately, the father of the child cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus didn't heal him because he wanted a bold declaration of faith. No, Jesus healed him. His son was better. But the father says, Jesus, I believe, I, but I also have some unbelief. Help me. When all the disciples of Jesus were leaving him, because Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the disciples say to Jesus, this is a hard saying, okay? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Because they have no context yet for communion. They have no context yet for the Last Supper. They're, they're thinking, this is cannibalism. Is this what we're doing now? Like, what is happening? And Jesus says to Peter, do you want to go too? And Peter says to him, no, 
because I know who you are. I saw you on the Mount of Transfiguration, and you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. My faith is strong. No. What did Peter say? Where else can we go? That's what he said. Where else are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? You see this feeble faith. You see this sense of like, I want, I want to. I want to believe this. This is hard to believe. We see Thomas. This is my favorite. My dad's name is Thomas. You see Thomas and Jesus says, we're going to go to Lazarus because Lazarus is dead. And Thomas is like, yes. Yes, because you've raised people from the dead. You are the resurrection and the life. I know what's going to happen. That's not what Thomas says. Thomas says, okay, let's go so we can die with Lazarus. That's literally what he said. It's in the Bible, recorded for us to see. Let's go so we can die with Lazarus. Let's talk about a down, downer on your team, right? So what happens? Jesus goes, raises Lazarus from the dead. Thomas is there, sees it, sees it. Jesus is resurrected. Thomas is with the other disciples. And the disciples say, the Lord is alive. And Thomas says, yes, I knew it. No, what does Thomas say? Unless I stick my fingers in his wounds, I will not believe. So what does Jesus do? He says, Thomas, here. Put your finger in there. Put your finger in here. And Thomas says, I believe. Jesus says, blessed are you who believe, but blessed are you who do not see and believe. Because there is, guys, there is, this, there is this faith that pleases God. It says, unless we pursue God with faith, it is impossible to please Him. There is this kind of mixture. But the Bible talks about it as a mustard seed, this tiny little thing. The Bible talks about it as leaven, this tiny little thing that has a huge impact. It's not the size of our faith. It's the size of our God. And faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is trusting God in the midst of fear and saying, God, I don't know how, but you're going to do this. Where do we need to exercise our insecure or feeble faith? Maybe your job, your marriage. Maybe you're looking at your marriage and like, I have no idea. I want to believe. I don't know how you're going to do this, God, but I know what you promised. I know that when we covenanted, you promised to be with us. I know that you're able to do this. You're looking at your kids. God, I don't know what you're doing here. You're looking at your relationships. You're looking at things that you felt God had promised you. And you're like, I don't know how you're going to do this. I want to say this, that God has already spoken to you, just like he spoke to Barak. And it's not a sense of, God, I want something new to run. And it's like, remember what God said to you. Because in this community, there are Debras that will encourage you, that will actually say to you, hey, remember? Remember what God said to you. Don't doubt in the darkness what you know to be true in the light. I know what I spoke of you. It's not gone. Remember what God said to you. There are Debras that we need to encourage us, that we need to go with us. And then there are also, actually, God bless your ails. There are people where you're like, man, I want to be like you. It's like, I'm bold. I know who God is. I'm going to take action. 
And what happens is as we see that as a community, what it does is it stirs us up. Because we don't have to be like either. We can be the way that God created us in terms of like, okay, I'll go um, in my feeble faith. But I like the fact that we can be a community that has Debra's and Yael's in there and actually say, yeah, we are able to do that. There will be Yael's that are bold and brave, but we have to still sit out and respond to the invitation of God. We need to say to ourselves and to each other, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, said this? Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, gone before you? Band, you can come up. What are our reminders? So we look at the Old Testament and we see in this very specific band that it seems that God had spoken to Barak about a very specific strategy with regards to the Canaanites. What is it that maybe we need to be reminded of? That maybe I'm saying to you, the Lord your God is reminding you of these things. I think one of the things that God is reminding us of is that Jesus will be with us in times of pain. So it's that both and. And Jesus says to his disciple, I've said these disciples, I've said these things to you so that you will have peace in me. In the world you will have distress, but be encouraged because I have conquered the world. We know the promise of Jesus, that he never promised that everything would be sunshine and roses, but that he promised in the valley of the shadow of death, you will not fear because I am with you. My rod and staff comfort you, and I prepare a table for you in the midst of your enemies. You know what else is there? Enemies. But I prepare a table for you in the midst of your enemies. So what has God commanded you to believe and understand? That Jesus is with you in times of pain. What else has God commanded you? The Lord has commanded you to remember that Jesus is with us in times of temptation. In Hebrews 13, as the writer continues after the hall of faith, he says, your way of life should be free from the love of money and you should be content with what you have. Now, listen to me. I'm I'm talking in terms of temptation with regards to satisfaction. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, your life should be free from the love of money and you should be content with with what you have. Why should we be content? Because he says this, after all, he has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. This is why we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? I know that Jesus is with me in my times of pain and suffering and trial. I know that Jesus is with me in my times of temptation. And I know that Jesus is with me when I go on mission. Matthew 28 says this, I received all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. He's with us in times of pain. He's with us in times of temptation. He's with us as we go on mission to revel, proclaim, demonstrate, and participate in acts of mercy for the common good. Jesus is our champion. Jesus did not do the piercing. He didn't use the hammer. He had the hammer used on him. Jesus' victory didn't look like victory. It looked like failure. 
but we have the promise of the Old Testament that said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our wholeness, broken for our wholeness. Why? So that pain, that sin, that shame, that guilt, that hopelessness, that the sense of like, I don't belong, and what am I here for is taken care of by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Father, I want to thank you that all you desire is a sense of feeble faith and the fact that you are the Son of God, came to earth, lived the life we could not live, died the death we deserved to die. You are raised, seated at the right hand of the Father. You sent your Spirit into us to enable us to live the kind of life that sees, that, that helps us to flourish so that others can see your beauty and your glory. Jesus, you are our champion. You are our friend. You are the one in whom we place our feeble faith. Amen. we are going to respond in communion. Um, but first, there's a, there's a couple of, uh, couple of words that, uh, that came to me that I'd, I'd like to invite both, both of you guys to, to come on up. Um, it, one of the things you, you, you don't know, uh, probably don't know, you wouldn't know it unless you're involved in like thinking through how the morning is going to go or whatever, is that God pulls things together. Like, I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, I'm like, the word that came this morning um, uh, from Steph, the, the message, some of the words that are going to be shared here, it's something that God gave me. And we didn't plan this stuff. God always seems to make connections. And I just I want to highlight that for you, uh, that that's something that just happens because God cares and, and he's here and he's present with us. And Joey, you had, uh, you had a word I'd like you to share. Yeah. Um, just felt God saying someone needs a Deborah. Um, and I just asked God, I was like, okay, what, is, what do they need a Deborah for? Um, and just have this, I feel like God was saying yesterday, um, yesterday something happened financially um, to where you, your faith just got rocked. Um, and you are struggling to see that God is good. Um, so yeah, I would love to pray for you and remind you of God's goodness. Um, yeah. Thanks, Joy. Candice. Um, <clears throat> so I cry a lot. It's just what's gonna happen. Um, God woke me up at like 12 and at 2 in the morning. I don't know what time I fell asleep, but I just felt like all of you are so precious in his sight. Like you are his woman, his bride. He like looks at you with such glowing love. And um, 
I just felt like, um, sorry, that's not what I told you, but <laughs> uh, adding, um, um, but I just kept singing and praying like, Holy Spirit, let your walls fall down. And at first I thought it was me. I was like, whoa, what is going on wrong with me? And it was like, no, it's for the bride. And I'm an American. <laughs> And we put facades up, guys. He doesn't want those facades anymore. He wants your redemption. He wants your freedom. He wants your love. He wants forgiveness. Do not go without prayer or connection. I felt, honestly, I just, I really did feel that God was saying, I take prayer over there just as seriously as the Christian who first comes to the altar for the first time. That's how powerful I feel about my people going and getting prayer. And I told Sean, I said, sometimes I think people don't realize that they need prayer. It's not stirring in them. And sometimes church, you know, and you go home and you didn't get prayer and who cares about the reputation? God wants you to pass through the, the Pharisees to be the bleeding woman and get the hem of his clothing and say, I don't flipping care what anyone thinks. I want me some Jesus. So get some Jesus. Um, we are, uh, we're gonna respond uh, quickly to communion. There's a table in the back. There's two, uh, two, two to my left. I just want to throw out, there's one other person that I think that needs prayer. Uh, this morning, the Lord um, put on my heart from Isaiah 40. Uh, it said, why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. I think that there's maybe one or two people in here that feel like we've listened to all of this and would say, yep, it's all good, but I don't feel like God's actually seeing me. Um, Isaiah goes on and says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He'll not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. If you feel like God is not seeing your way, you get receive prayer. He, he, he is there for you. He does not grow weary. The rest of us, I want you to grab the elements, come back to your... Come back to your seat, and I'll lead us through communion. Church, we, uh, we hold in our hand uh, a symbol of the broken body of Christ. Um, the one who became weak for us and conquered uh, on, on our behalf. He was broken for us. We do this in remembrance of him. We also take the cup that Jesus said is the, the blood of the new covenant it was shed for the remission of our sins, all of them. We do this in gratitude and remembrance of him. The, uh, the band is going to continue to play. We're going to officially dismiss.
Um, and out the doors, kind of around the double doors, there's a place in the back. If you're new here, we'd love to meet you. Uh, say, say hello. If you need prayer, please receive prayer. Both what Candace shared about, uh, about not just going home and recognizing that God does want to meet you. Or maybe you're that person that had a financial hit yesterday. Specifically, that's called a word of knowledge. That's you. Uh, go, and, go and receive prayer. Uh, approach Joey and, 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 and receive prayer. If you feel like your way has been hidden from God, please receive prayer. If you need anything else, <laughs> receive prayer. Prayer is always a good idea. So uh, uh, the band's going to continue to play. We'd love to say hi to you on the back. Go out and be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.